you will turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16, as we continue to follow the Lord Jesus in His earthly trek as He is ministering here on the earth. And we're learning from Matthew's perspective things about our Lord that can endear us to Him. You should know Him better now, having sat through some of these, but it's not all of these messages than you've ever known before. It's the theme of the message. Listen carefully. Look up on the screen. True believers. True, true believers. True receive Jesus Christ. Just as He is revealed in Holy Scriptures. God serve and obey Him. Living in full anticipation of His glorious return. True believers. Can we see Jesus Christ just as He is revealed in the Holy Scriptures? Anything other than what the Word of God teaches about Jesus, that you may believe, you need to destroy it right away. It's not of God. For instance, if you somehow believe that you believe in Jesus, but you can't accept that He is virgin born, you don't believe in the Jesus of the Bible. If you say, well, I believe in Jesus as a Jesus of love, but I don't believe that he would judge people and allow them to go to a terrible place like hell. Friend, you don't believe in the Jesus of the Bible. If you say, well, I believe that Jesus is a marvelous teacher and proclaimer, but I just don't know about all these miracles, supposedly, like walking on the water and feeding 5,000 people from five loaves and two fishes, then, dear friend, you don't believe in the Jesus of the Bible. You make sure that you check your beliefs and thoughts about the Lord Jesus Christ and make sure they are reflected directly in God's Word. Anything more, anything less will not do. Only that He is revealed to the Holy Scriptures. That's who I'm preaching. I'm preaching the Jesus of the Bible, who is the Christ, who is the Son of the living God, who is the Messiah of the world, who is the King of kings, who is the Lord of lords, who is the reigning sovereign who will one day come in majesty and power and glory when, and will establish his reign upon this earth and he will end sin and suffering. Who is the Son of God? He is the Jesus of the Bible. Something you may want to contemplate is this builds on last week. Who do I say that Jesus is? We wrestled with that last week. And you should know. You should be able to say. When anybody asks you, you should be able to say confidently, resoundingly, Jesus is the Christ. He is the Son of the living God. He is my Savior. But expand that question also, not only to who do I say that Jesus is, but also ask yourself, what do I say He has done for me? It's not good enough just to believe that Jesus was a wonderful teacher, that He visited the earth, that He is the Son of God, you must believe that He died on a cross 2,000 years ago, 
shed his precious, sinless, atoning blood to redeem you from the penalty of your sins. He is the suffering Savior, the Lamb of God. What did Jesus do for you? That determines your relationship with God. Because if you don't believe Jesus is indeed God for your sins, you're free. You're not saved. You're lost. Claim the teachings of the Scriptures and claim the wonderful promise of our God. Amazing love. Amazing love. That you, my God, would die for me. Praise the Lord. Now, if you are watching the Jesus video, which I think is a wonderful production that came out years ago, teaching actually the, the Gospel of Luke. And you were watching the Jesus video and you were at this point. So Jesus is in the region of Caesarea Philippi with his disciples. Peter having just made the great confession of faith. And Jesus in response said, I will call you Simon Peter. A rock. And upon you, upon, uh, upon this rock, this rock, the Upon this mountain, not you, Peter, a little rock, but upon this mountainous rock of Gibraltar, which is your professed faith in Jesus Christ as the Son of God, upon this massive foundation of solid rock faith, I will build my church. Now, if you were watching the Jesus video and you're at that point, and you fast forwarded your video, up to Luke 24. I know I'm taking you out of Matthew's gospel, but just indulge me to take you there. We're going to fast forward, okay? To Luke 24, so as your fingers are going to walk into the front pages. We fast forwarded about six months. And we're at Luke 24, verse 1. This is the third day after Jesus' effort. This is after he's been arrested, tried, crucified, buried, and obtained. Now the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they and so know the women with them came to the tomb, bring the spices which they had prepared. But they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Then they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And it happened as they were greatly perplexed about this. And there were two men stood out by them in shining garments angels. Then as they were afraid and bowed down their faces to the earth, they said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. That is risen. This is Easter Sunday morning for those of you that maybe hadn't sat together. And we'll be revisiting this in a few weeks. So here's what I want you to now slow down. Slow down and look what the angel said. And this will help you to appreciate where we're going today. There in verse 6. He is not here, but he is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, and be crucified, and the third day rise again. And look at verse 8. 
And they remembered his words. Now we pass rewind. And we're back to Matthew chapter 16, verse 21. Because I want us to look now at the preeminence of his mission. The preeminence of his mission. The grammar is reading with me in verse 21, Matthew chapter 16. From that time, in other words, after Jesus' confession, after Jesus' proclamation of building the church on the rock of faith, after that time marked a turning point. As I told you last week, from this point on, Jesus' focus is upon Jerusalem. He sees the cross of Calvary looming in the distance just a few months away from him. So, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And he raised again at their gate. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall not happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me. For you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Well, Jesus has told his disciples to stop him. But it's not brand new. It's embedded in the Old Testament. You go back to Genesis chapter 22, and you'll find God saying to his faithful servant Abraham, Abraham, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, take him to the section of the region of Moriah, and there you will sacrifice him. And you know the story. Abraham faithfully took Isaac and a couple of servants, and they made their way to the exact mountain that God had designated. Now, I'll point out something that sometimes we overlook, because we oftentimes see Isaac as a little boy playing in the backyard, you know, and Dad says, come on, Isaac, go with me. We're going to go do something. And he just innocently, oh, okay, Dad. And, you know, Isaac was a grown man. A grown, physically, emotionally mature man. He goes with his dad. And as he goes, he can see the, 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 the things that they're taking with them. They're going to be a sacrifice. They're going to be a sacrifice. And when he gets to the point where the, his father Abraham tells him, tells his servant, now you stay here. Isaac puts his bundle of wood and he lays it on his big, very son's shoulders. And in one hand, Abraham has his fire, which, and in the other hand, a knife. Isaac is no dummy. As he follows his father up the hill, something is missing. The wood? Got it. The fire? Got it. The knife? Still the sacrificial lamb? Got it. The sacrifice is missing. What I want you to see is Isaac, I believe, knew. Going up that mountain, following his father, that he was the sacrifice. And not once did he whimper, whine, not once did he resist. Hey, listen, Abraham was only up in age, past a hundred. This very healthy, young, strapping man could have whipped his dad and said, forget you, dad. You don't be serious, but I'm not going to lay down on that altar. No, no, because he trusted his father. 
who knew his dad, loved God, and trusted God. This is a picture of what happened on the cross for Jesus. Did you know from the story of Abraham, just as Abraham was ready to plunge the blessing to the heart of his son, God said, stop right there. That's as far as you need to go. And God provided the ram in the bushes and they sacrificed that. And God didn't stop at Calvary. He went all the way. So you see a beautiful picture of what Jesus is describing, even played out in the story of Isaac and his father Abraham. But not only there, if you were to read chapter 53 of that great prophet Isaiah, you will find very descriptively and graphically laid out before you the suffering Messiah. How Jesus would be tortured and how he would be uh, abandoned and he would be sacrificed. It's right there. Isaiah portrayed it all. The Jewish leaders of the first century Judaism, the time in which Jesus was ministering, they had all rationalized that away. They couldn't accept that their promised Messiah would be treated this way and would be something like that. Oh no, he had to be a political champion. He had to be a military champion. Oh, he couldn't be, that couldn't be talking about the Messiah. That had to be something else or someone else. It was there. Even in Matthew's Gospel, as we're making our way up to chapter 16, even as, far, uh, as recent as chapter 12 in Matthew's Gospel, we saw Jesus... As he answered the scribes and Pharisees when they were asking him for a sign, Jesus told them in verse 40 of, of, of Matthew chapter 12, Jesus embedded in this description. He said, listen, the only sign you're going to get, the only sign this generation will get will be like the sign of Jonah. Jonah was in the belly of a whale for three days. He said, likewise, the son of man will be in the belly of the bowel of the earth. So that is burial. And then even after chapter 16, Jesus alludes to this startling revelation of his arrest and his trial and his crucifixion and his burial and his resurrection. Even in chapter 17, verse 9, after they had a great vision with Jesus and Jesus told them in verse 9, tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. He reminds them, I'm going to be raised from the dead. He didn't stop there. In verse 22 of chapter 17, Jesus speaks of it again. Now, while they were staying in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and the third day he will be raised up over and over again. Jesus told his disciples about this great, horrific event that was just in the near future. This, however, verse 21 in 22, this, or verse 21, is the first unambiguous description of his impending passion. This is the first time that Jesus has just laid it on the line and said, this is what's going to happen. And the news was hardly harsh, and it was startling. It was, a, it was a horrific revelation to his disciples. And Jesus described it clearly. Let me tell you something. What we find Jesus saying here is not the mere speculation of a martyr. What we see here is Jesus describing there's a plan. There's a plan that the Father has set in place before the dawning of history. Before the first human being was ever created, the Father, Son, and Spirit said, we have to have a plan. And that plan is this. And Jesus knew this was 
what he had to do. He clearly describes the Father's divine imperative. Look what he says there in verse 21. He said, he told his disciples, that he should, that he ought to know. He says, he must. There's no other alternative. There's no other choices. He must go to Jerusalem. He must suffer at the hands of those who don't like him, like the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. He must be killed and be raised on the third day. Why? Because it was the will of God the Father. Everything that Jesus did. He says, I am here for one purpose and one purpose only. That is to do the will of my Father who is in heaven. I love John chapter 15 verse 10 where he tells his disciples and he says to you and him, if you keep my commandments you will abide in my love even as I have kept my Father's commandment and I abide in His love. You see, the way Jesus expressed His love to the Father was in absolute obedience. And that's how we express our love to God. To our obedience to Him. So this is the the, the Lord's startling revelation. As we look at verse 22, we'll see the adversary's calculated assault. I think about Satan just as Peter describes him over there in verse 22. He says, you know, uh, that Satan is like a prowling, hungry, roaring lion. And Jesus is stretched all through Galilee, hell, and the Caesarea, Philippi, and to the wilderness. Everywhere that Jesus and his band of twelve, some of the women, Maybe a few others, but everywhere they have gone, like a herd of antelopes, just on the perimeter, licking his chops, leaning in the path, Satan. Satan is looking, he's looking for every possible potential opportunity that he can trip up to the Father. Quick he strike, quick he attack. But as soon as Jesus makes this declaration, let me tell you something. Satan doesn't wait for second. Do you remember in Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11? Jesus was led by the Spirit out into the wilderness. Hello, right? Not really. The devil was off there with him too. And for 40 days and nights, he tempted Jesus in every possible way that he possibly could. To no avail. Jesus didn't yield to his temptations to thwart him from fulfilling God's Father's divine plan for his life. And then eventually Satan had to leave. But you know what's interesting in Luke's version of that, in Luke chapter 4, verse 3, it says that Satan left all right, but he added this until an opportune time. He's watching. He's waiting. And now Jesus has let the cat out of there bag to his disciples. He's going to be crucified. He's going to be buried. And on the third day, he'll be raised again. And with that, Simon, Peter, the rock, again, I believe, not just speaking for himself, but speaking as a representation of the twelve. I believe what Peter blurted out, all the rest of them were speaking to him. Peter just happens to be a little bit more impulsive, a little impetuous, and so there in verse 22, then Peter took him aside. Had the audacity to say, oh, Jesus, Jesus, what's Lord called over here? This is not going to happen to you, Lord. Not you. Get that out of your mind. Sure enough. I think Satan is quick to move in. Isn't that amazing? 
But Satan would manipulate the rock. I was at the field of the field. Peter, the rock. And he's a building block of the church. And now all of a sudden the building block becomes a building block. And listen, let me dare stand back and piously judge the rock. Might I warn you that on any given day, you and I can become the same instrument in the hands of your adversary. My friend Tim took his mom and I on a book a few months ago. It's entitled The Devil in the Seventh Tier. I don't know if It's a true story. About a small church in North Carolina. Down in the Sand Hill section of White Land, White Hill, Chadburn, in that area. I don't know exactly, but they get the town. But yeah, in that area. It's a true story. Which tells about how one man, unfortunately, a leader in that little church, an influential member of the community, allowed Satan to use him to wage unholy war against that young pastor and his dear little family. And as the story unfolds, and it's a true story, and the reason that he was launching this unholy war against this pastor is because the pastor refused to let this power-hungry, pridefully sinful man direct the affairs of the church like he had always done. And let me tell you something. As the story unfolds, as told by this pastor's daughter who is now herself an adult, I'm going to tell you something. It will chill your blood. It will cause you to, it will blow your mind. You will think you are watching a Steven Spielberg movie. The Devil in the Seventh Tee. I understand that the daughter was on the Dr. Field program just a couple months ago. What I'm trying to say is this. Maybe to a lesser degree, Satan is in the field of this church. And probably most churches across this nation, unfortunately sometimes in the Texas, wish they have us. And maybe pastors probably wish they'd never gone into the gospel ministry. They wonder if they should stay there. Listen, you and I must determine that we will not allow the adversary to use us. God forbid that the Lord Jesus Christ would look at us and see in us, motivated by our selfishness, our sinful pride, and actually become a tool in the hands of the devil working against the will of God. Jesus resolutely confronts his enemy. In verse 23, Jesus turned and said to Peter, and this, this is right after he told Peter, Blessed are you, Simon, Gargona. So I'll tell you the rock. Blessed are you, Peter. Now he's looking into Peter's eyes. Can you imagine the eyes of the Son of God peering into your eyes, looking past your pupils and retina, deep down into the recesses of your heart and your soul. Jesus looked beyond Peter, looked straight in the eyes of the devil who was there, and he says, Get 
deep behind me. Then it says, let it get out of my way. You know, Saul went into temptation in the wilderness. Jesus told Satan, be gone. After he'd been thinking, get out of here, Satan. Take you run a straight dog off in your house. Get out of here. This is what Jesus said. You are an offense to me. Huh? So you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Dear Christian brother and sister, dear friend, let me tell you something. If your agenda is not purely the, the spirit-led, Bible-based will of God, be careful. Be very careful. Satan knows your heart. He knows your will. He knows your spirit. And he knows how to manipulate you to work against the very Savior you claim to love. Don't fall into that trap because I promise you this. I promise you this based upon the teaching of the Word of God. Jesus will not stand for it. If you confront Peter, he'll confront you. The preeminence of his mission. Nothing was going to deter Jesus Christ from fulfilling the will of God the Father. Nothing! What's the matter with him? Doesn't he know he's headed to a cross? Doesn't he know he's going to suffer in agony like no man in history has ever suffered spiritually, emotionally, physically? Doesn't he? Sure he knows that. But he also knows that if he doesn't fulfill the Father's will, carry out the redemption plan of God, that every last one of us will burn in hell for eternity. The stakes were too great. Here is what I call the paradox of discipleship. The new servant. In Jesus, in verse 24, Jesus said to his disciples, if any man desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. This is very reminiscent of what Luke says in 9.23. And then Luke said in verse four, uh, chapter 14, verse 26 and 27, If any man comes to me and hates not his father and his mother and his wife and his children, they and his own wife also, he cannot be my disciple. Following Jesus is costly, dear friend. Following Jesus Christ. As a true believer, it's, it's a costly endeavor. So Jesus gives a clear warning, if you will, to those who live for the here and now, as we had to read further. In verse 25, For whoever desires to save his life, pollute it. And whoever loses his life, for my sake, will find it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? You see the contrast, you see the contrast there that Jesus is putting up? Here's the clear one to those who live in the here and now. Listen to the the Western world, by the way. These are the people that have fallen into the trap of humanism and materialism, and they and they resign themselves and hey, we only go around once. This is it. Go for the next show. Who's going to be married? This is it. The people who live in the here and now. You see, the God of materialism has frighteningly been successful in getting people to bow down to the gods, the idols of money and cars and homes and careers and popularity and, and, and all kinds of luxury and, and, and toys. The philosophy of this world is he 
who dies with no choice wins. The problem is that's a diabolical lie. Because while Satan and the flesh have preoccupied so many people, they get this, get this, earn that, accumulate this, build up, all, all, look at me, look at me. All the time they're being blinded to the reality that judgment is coming. And all these people that are out there, and many of them are in the church, Unfortunately, the church is not Jesus Christ. It's not serving the Lord. It's about money. It's about uh, careers. It's about things. It's about pleasure. It's about, listen, they're in the church. And they're being horribly deceived by the world. The whole time that they're out there viciously, greedily pursuing the things of this world, the here and now, realize, not even realizing that one day they will suffer. Seriously. In a terrible place, a place of never quenching fires, and absolute darkness, and isolation, and separation from God called hell. Jesus said, Her who desires to save his life will lose it. If you're intent in this life, if you want to save your life, in other words, you want to get all the pleasure you can, you want to get all the comfort you can while you're in this life, you're a friend, listen, you will get it. This will be all the rewards you'll get. So look what, look what you're going to lose. Jesus says, what good is it if you get the whole world, all the money in the world, all the things in the world, all the popularity of the world, what good is it if when the time comes, and believe you me, the Bible says in Hebrews 9, 7, it is appointed unto man once to die, and then the judgment, it's not a matter of when you're going to die, or if you're going to die, you will die. And when that time comes, if you've invested yourself in the things of this world, and this has been your preoccupation, then Jesus says, what good is it that you lose your soul for eternity? Eternity! Like a cup of smoke. That's your life in this world compared to eternity. See, the Lord promises this eternal reward for those who are faithful. He tells us that He will judge every person. I think about over in Revelation chapter 2, verse 10. There's John writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to the church, to the saints at Smyrna. And it says, do not worry there in Revelation 3.10, it says, do not worry about the things that you will suffer. For indeed, the devil will arrest some of you. Some of you are going to go to jail. And, and you will suffer tribulation for ten days. This is during that horrible tribulation time. He says, don't worry about that. He says, look, you be faithful even unto death. And you will receive the crown of life. You see, not only will those who neglect the call of Christ on their lives and choose to live for the here and now face judgment, but the Bible tells us clearly that we who are faithful, we shall receive our rewards. That's what Paul is talking about over in 1 Corinthians in chapter 4. He says that there will come a time when every one of us will stand before the Lord and we will be judged according to our works. Works don't save us. 
But as a result of our salvation, we should be obediently serving the Lord. And when the day comes and you stand before the Lord, you will receive reward for all of your faithful service to God. All of the things that you have sacrificed. A Christian is going to tell you something. Serving the Lord involves sacrifice. You must be willing to take up your cross is what Jesus says. You must deny yourself. Obedience to the Lord doesn't come easy. It's like that old hymn. If Jesus bears the cross alone and all the world go free, no, there's a cross for everyone. And there's a cross for me. And what does the cross represent? The cross represents you and I suffering. Listen, everything that we suffer because of our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ is your cross. You, you, say, well, I, I, you know, I'm an alcoholic and, I, and I'm suffering terribly with all the, the symptoms and everything that goes along that and the brokenness and the heartache. Friend, that's not your cross. That's the consequence of your sin. You're suffering as a result of addiction to drugs. That's not your cross. That's the consequences of your sin. If you're in a relationship you have no business in and you're suffering as a result of that, let me tell you something. That's not your cross. That's consequences of your sin. A cross is when you deliberately determine to follow Jesus Christ. And because of that decision, you have to sacrifice. You suffer. That's your cross. It's bearing the cause of your love for the Lord and your determination to follow Him. Every mistake about it, friend. Following, the, following Christ will cost you. It might cost you a position on the sports team. It might cost you a scholarship. It might cost you a job. It might cost you a promotion. It might cost you a business deal. It might cost you friends. It might cost you popularity. That's your cross. That's your cross. I remember going out of the church and over the doors as you walked out the exit, there was an old sign. Been there for years. Faded. Age, but it said, no cross, no crown. And finally, we move to the last two verses of this. Verse 27, Jesus said, for the Son of Man, and that's Jesus, is one of his favorite references to himself. Comes out of the book of Daniel. But it talks about the Messiah. It talks about the humanity of the Messiah. He's holy, no doubt about it. He's divine, no doubt about it. But he is man. It speaks of his ability to relate to you and me. The son of man, he was born fully divine from heaven, but of a virgin. He was twisted in every way, the Bible says, yet without sin. So when you cry out to the Lord, Lord, I am under terrible temptation, he knows what you're going through. He knows the emotions that we feel. When you grieve, let me tell you something. He has grieved too. When you're frustrated, he knows what frustration is. He knows what it feels to be persecuted and ostracized. Listen, he can identify. So he says, the Son of Man, the Messiah, will come in glory, in the glory of his Father and his angels. And I think about over there, 
in Revelation chapter 19. I won't go over there, but, but did you know, here in his last chapters of the Bible, it talks about after the great tribulation and Satan and his minions and the Antichrist, and they wrecked this world in the terrible cataclysmic judgment of God's been poured out one after another on the world. Everything is in absolute chaos. It says, and the heavens opened. Boy, I can't wait to see that. And the heavens opened, and there was a great white horse, and on that horse was one who wore many crowns, whose robes were dipped in blood. And with him were all the armies of heaven on white horses, dressed in linen, just as you and me, who riding up, bringing up the rear with all the angels, with all the seraphim, listen, all the hosts of heaven coming in glory. That's what Jesus Christ is going to do one day. Because he is the Son of God. When it comes, he will bring judgment. Judgment is nothing new to the Scriptures. In Psalm 62, 12, it tells us about the Lord bringing judgment. It says, and this is the psalm, it's in Psalm 62, 12. Also to you, O Lord, belongs mercy, for you will render to each one according to his will. Everybody will be judged, it says. And then over in Proverbs chapter 24, verse 12, this is what it says about the Lord. It says, if, if you say, surely we did not know this, does not he who weighs the heart consider it? He who keeps his soul, does he not know it? And he will not render, and will he not render to each man according to his deeds? Every person ever born will stand before the Lord in judgment. Those who have rejected him in this life will stand before that great white throne of judgment, and they will be judged according to their deeds. But also we know that those of us who are Christians, we also will stand before the Lord, and we will be judged. And Jesus, when he comes, in verse 28, he says, Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. He will manifest the complete glory of God. As they're looking upon Jesus, they're looking upon God, but they can't comprehend that. It's like when Philip asked the Lord, Lord, show us the Father. You remember what Jesus said, Philip? He said, How long have I been with you? Don't you realize when you see me, you see the Father? We are one. One. But you see, after this point, they haven't seen him in all of his glory. Glory means the totality of God's nature, character, and attributes. Colossians chapter 2, verse 9 says, In him dwells, speaking of Christ, in him dwells the fullness of the Godhead. Every attribute that you can attribute to God the Father applies to God the Son. And Hebrews in chapter 1, verse 3 says, Who, speaking of Christ, who be in the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. He says, This Jesus has all the glory of God. One day he's coming. And his faithful followers will see him in all of his glory. Something similar to the simple vision that Isaiah, chapter 6, when Isaiah says, I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And then we shall see him. I love that song that singer Sandy Patty used to sing. We shall 
behold him. Ladies and gentlemen, we now look through the lens of the scriptures and we see the precious Son of God. God does a marvelous job of describing himself and his Son through his words. The first coming of day. And I pray it won't be long off in the distance. And that trumpet will sound. And the archangel will shout. And the heavens will open. And we who remain will be caught up. To move him in the air. With all the saints who go on before, we will look upon him. We will see his nail-scarred hands. We will see him not as that humble teacher, not as that simple man that walked around, but no, ladies and gentlemen, when we see him, the son of man, coming again with all the angels with him, his power and his splendor and his glory will radiate all through the heavens and we will bow down before him and will praise him and worship him because he is Lord and he is worthy of praise because he manifests the glory of God. Oh, what a blessed hope is I. In Christ Jesus. Jesus knew it was important when he told his disciples about his impending death. And he also gives them an element of hope. Dear brother and sister, I know some of you are struggling through life. I know you're going through your trials. I know that Satan doesn't leave anyone alone if they're faithfully following Christ. I know this is an evil world that's bent against the Lord. Listen, I know these are hard and trying times to be faithful as souls of Christ. But take heart. Take heart. Joy comes in the morning. In the darkness of this cloudy, sin-shrouded world, one day, one day, taken on the horizon with a beam of beautiful and glorious shine and Shekinah glory of God radiating from the Lamb of God, the Son of God, and we will look and we will see Him and we will worship Him. One glorious day. There is a blessed hope in Christ that we have through our faith in Him. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your amazing love. Lord, you could have kept all of this a secret. And just let us wander through life. See the stumbling along, desperately trying to find you. But instead, your mercy and your love and your grace chose to reveal yourself to us in Christ. We have a Savior. We have a Lord who is the Son of God. But I pray for anyone here today who doesn't enjoy a deep abiding faith relationship with Jesus Christ and the assurance of salvation and the blessed hope of eternity in heaven. Lord, I know you love them. I pray that if this is a day that you have appointed for them to humble themselves and confess their sins and profess faith in you and be saved, I pray this would be the day. Lord, I pray for... Christians here today. Some are struggling, Lord. You know the trials, you know the tribulations they're going through. You know the temptations they face. Oh God, you understand. I pray that you speak a word of encouragement to to them and Lord, embed in their hearts this blessed hope. Remind them who they are and who they are. Lord, I pray you speak to the hearts of the people here today. 
Help us, Lord, to look beyond this dismal, sin-saturated world and see the great breaking of that dawn when you are coming again to set things right here as the King of Kings. Lord, have your will in our lives to surrender ourselves to you for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I believe that was the end of invitation, but I asked God to lead us in as wherever he leads. I'll go. First, we're talking about discipleship. We're talking about fellowship. I know many of you, well, some of you hadn't sung the song that we sang to him earlier, but it's about following Christ. It's about taking up our cross and following him. Following in his footsteps. Not the patterns of the world. Not chasing after the things that are popular in this world. But Deliberately choosing to walk in the very footsteps of Jesus. To follow Him. To endure whatever you have to suffer, sacrifice, whatever you have to sacrifice, to be obedient and faithful to Him. And that's the call that the Lord issues to all of us. Be a disciple, but be a faithful disciple. Let Christ speak to your heart this morning.